is good to be with you here today. And I, I don't know if I said this before when I've been here before, but um, I grew up at a church that was very similar to this. Even the layout was very similar to this. And so we've been at Crossroads for 15 years, but when I come here, I kind of feel like I'm coming home. So I am, I am grateful for the opportunity. And um, when I asked, yeah, I asked Ben, I said, what, you know, what would you want me to speak on? And he said, well, I'm in a series on John, so just don't speak on John. And so I said, okay, <laughs> I'll, avoid, I'll avoid John. And I did think, though, it is, it is good for us to reflect on Lent. And Lent is a, it's a strange season because it's a season that's intended to pull us out of our regular rhythm and cause us to slow down a little bit. And it's supposed to connect us to the experience of Jesus in the desert. And we're, we're in a gap where we've, you know, we've had Christmas and we're not yet at Easter. And so it's a tension period, transition period. And transition spaces are, are often uncomfortable spaces. If you think of transition spaces in life, we don't normally gussy them up, make them comfortable, like a doorway is a transition space. Or an engagement is a transition space. A pregnancy, those of you who have been pregnant, we know it's not very comfortable. Or puberty, no one wants to stay there for too long. And over Christmas, I discovered that some airport terminals are also meant to be transition spaces. I don't know if any of the other ones of you got caught in all of the craziness of the planes getting canceled and the delays. And we were, we were in the airport for hours and hours and hours with our three little girls. And um, nothing says uncomfortable like post-COVID having your kids stuck in the airport and they're very visibly becoming feverish. And everyone's looking at you and there's nowhere to go and you know you're going to be stuck there for a whole lot more hours. And Lent is this kind of space. And the concept of waiting or desert is something that is prevalent all throughout scripture. But sometimes our, our modern translations, we can kind of soften up the language a bit. We often, in our NIV, we see the word patience used lots. Patience isn't so bad. Patience is a virtue. Patience is a, a fruit of the Spirit. But in the King James translation, it kind of unpacks it a little bit more fully for us because this concept in the King James is expressed in the word long-suffering. Lent is a season of long-suffering, which is why some of us don't really like to partake in Lent. And yet, long-suffering is one of the characteristics of God that he revealed himself to Moses in. This morning, I want us to look at a very short passage in Exodus chapter 34, where Moses is asking the Lord for his character. And, and Moses is standing there and the Lord proclaims who he is. He says, Exodus 34, 6, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. 
And those first two, we've got compassionate and gracious, and those two kind of go together. And then you've got abounding in love and faithfulness. And those two go together. And right in between, we have this slow to anger, or in the King James, long-suffering. And if you look at the Hebrew translation, what that word actually means in Hebrew, it's different than what we do in NIV or King James. It means this. It means long-nostrilled, which is very strange to us. But for Hebrew people, anger was seen as being located in the nose. And that seems really bizarre unless you think of like an old, I thought of an old, you know, cartoon character like Elmer Fudd. Some of you know Elmer Fudd. And he gets so mad at that wascally wabbit. And then all of a sudden steam just starts coming out his ears. And so for the Hebrews, it wasn't coming out the ears. It was coming out the nose. That's a picture we're being given. And God isn't described as being kind of an Elmer Fudd. He doesn't blast off steam. He's got long nostrils. And so he's actually able to suffer that burn of anger, frustration, that steam for a long time. He endures it. Slow to anger, long suffering, long nostrils. And today I I want us to look at three things that this characteristic of God might say to us or remind us of in this Lent season. And the first is a simple one. It's that God's character is long-suffering. It's, it's, not, it's not anger. We say he's slow to anger, but his characteristic isn't anger. And I, I don't know if that many people in our culture today would know that about God. A lot of people in our life maybe have a characteristic about their personality. You know, if we had to list five things that characterize people, we might have someone in our life whose characteristic is anger. Many of us have been hurt by people who are angry. And yet what's being highlighted here is not that God gets angry. It's that the length of that nostril is so long, he's able to live in the uncomfortable tension, that transition space. He's slow to anger. And the Bible is full of so many powerful images of this. If you think of Hosea, Hosea is told to marry a prostitute. And he, he, he is stuck in this situation where he is to represent God's long suffering to his wife. It's a very vivid picture of living in the tension. Or you've got Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is told by God, lay on your side for 390 days. What a strange picture. 390 days of laying on your side publicly so that people can be reminded of the 390 years that God has been long-suffering. Or that picture of the long-suffering father whose prodigal son has run away and every day he waits looking down the road This week, I I thought, you know, sometimes God's slowness to anger is actually a frustration to us. 
We don't want him to be so long-suffering sometimes. Sometimes we want him to be a little bit quicker to anger if there's been an injustice done to us or to someone vulnerable. And I thought of that this last week because I was going through some old books and I came across a book by Ravi Zacharias. And if you don't know Ravi, Ravi is a Christian apologist who, who was not so long ago exposed for his oppressive immorality. And I held this book and I felt so angry. You know, he, he dragged the character of the Lord through the mud. And yet as I held that book, all of a sudden I, I thought, you know, maybe in the news, God's character got dragged through the mud, but what's true of his character in Ravi Zacharias's life or anyone else who has been publicly exposed is that God has actually been long-suffering towards them. I thought of all of the years that God prompted him and gave him opportunities. And while I might become quick to anger, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, he is not slow as some understand slowness. He is patient towards us, not wanting any to perish. Even the people that we're happy to be angry with. God is slow to anger. He's long-suffering. But the second observation that I think does need to be made is that if his character is slowness or long-suffering, he still does become angry. And what does it mean for God to become angry? And sometimes scholars will talk about the first use of a word. Maybe you've heard this before. Sometimes when they're trying to figure out what a word means in different places in the Bible, they'll look to the first time it was used and evaluate it against that. And where in the Old Testament is the first use of God's anger? You can think through the stories. Adam and Eve, or Cain and Abel, or the flood, where there's that whole lot fiasco. And yet it isn't until Moses that we actually get this term of God being angry. And it's, it's in the story where God is trying to enlist Moses to be his image bearer. And he says, I've got people who are being oppressed and I, I'm, I'm bringing you along. Would you come and would you help free them from oppression? Five times God asks Moses and five times he says, no. That's where we get God becoming angry. Five times he's long-suffering. Five times he comes back and forth with Moses. And then it says his nose gets hot. He's angry. What's he angry at? A God-fearer not caring about oppression and injustice. God gets angry at our apathy. I don't know what made you angry this last week. This last week, I, I couldn't get a Ziploc bag open. And it had my peppers in it, and my kids were wanting snacks. And I, it must have been, I don't think I'm exaggerating. I think 30 seconds. 30 seconds. I tried and tried and tried. And I got so angry at this bag, I just wanted to throw the peppers. I was so frustrated. But I set them down, walked away. 
I'm angry at a Ziploc bag. God's angry at our apathy against injustice. And currently in our society, we have kind of an interesting relationship with the word of anger because, you know, if you hear in in psychology today, we often talk about anger as being a secondary emotion. Maybe you've heard that term. And what we mean by that is that oftentimes we're angry, but it's not the right response. We're angry when we should be sad. We're angry when we should maybe express our shame. We're angry because we're afraid. And it's, it's a secondary emotion, meaning it's not the correct one. But is it always incorrect? In the Old Testament, they believed that, that God was only good if he was angry at injustice. And they expected that God was going to be good above everything. And I think the switch has come in our society because goodness or justice is not our highest value. We value tolerance higher than we value goodness. Tolerance is is us having to be okay with things that we think are actually wrong or unjust. And when tolerance is our highest value, it kind of squeezes out the possibility of anger being the correct response to someone's actions. And how in our society do they get us to not respond in anger? I think, I read in a book by John Mark Comer, he talks about this and he says, in our society, we get people to not react by redefining the terms. Let me give you an example. Lust is easier to swallow if we call it love. Or divorce. Divorce doesn't have to be seen as the breaking of solemn vows. It can be seen as an act of courage. Or self-authenticating. We could say pornography, it's not objectifying women. There's there's some women out there who want to be in pornography. It can be empowering to them. We just shift the words a bit or or greed. That's an easy one. I'm not greedy. I'm a good steward. I'm responsible. Or environmental destruction or, or the taking advantage of poor people in other countries, poor laborers. It's just globalism. Or abortion. The killing of our most Vulnerable, most innocent. You know what the term we call that? In the textbooks, we call it reproductive justice. And doesn't that sound so much easier to tolerate if we just redefine the terms? And there's entire countries now that have eliminated between 98 and 100% of Down syndrome cases. And we call it progress. And yet we think that because sin no longer makes us angry, that it no longer makes God angry. But for the Israelites, their number one most quoted verse in the Old Testament scriptures, their John 3.16, actually includes God's anger. 
And it's the following verse from his character. It says this, Exodus 34, verse seven. It says, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This is their most quoted verse. Listen to this. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It's a good spot to take a pause and say, what? We just talked about him being long-suffering. He can endure. He's patient. But once he gets mad, it's like, watch out, because he's not just coming for you. He's coming for your grandkids. That's what it sounds like here. And it's uncomfortable. And I remember hearing this as a kid, and I thought, skip past that one. That's not a good one to memorize. (laughs) I don't want to have to talk about that to my non-Christian friends. Why does this bother us so much when this is what the Israelites quoted? I think it's because many of us, we know the impact of generational revenge. Generational anger. It's the, it's the man who, you know, had a really controlling dad. And he, he was strict and, and controlled every aspect of his life. And, and so when that dad has kids, he's still angry at his dad and he, he doesn't set any boundaries for his kids. Generational revenge. And those kids go on to live boundaryless lives. We've, we've all experienced elements of generational anger. We're mad at someone. We take it out on someone else. Maybe not on purpose. We don't really want a God like that. And yet, this is their most quoted passage. And if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, this is the first spot where Moses quotes it again. Chapter 5, verse 9. And in this spot, Moses says it this way. He's explaining it a little further. He says, I'm a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And then he explains, he says, of those who hate me. By which he means, this isn't, I'm going to take it out on your grandbabies. He's saying, if you hate me and your kids hate me and their kids hate me, I will be consistent with them. It's his consistency in anger. It's not his taking it out on others. He's saying, I will respond the same in my anger. And I thought probably most of us have a default with anger. Most of us have a a consistent way we respond. Maybe some of us yell or talk loudly or we withdraw or we see people pick it in their anger or shake Ziploc bags or whatever the crazy things we do are our default. And yet what does God do in his anger? What is God's default? How is he consistent when he expresses his anger? And if you look through the Old Testament and the New, the most common phrase used to describe God's anger is he turned them over. He turned them over. It says this over and over again. He turned them over. Turned them over to what? what they wanted. And the Israelites, they, 
they reject God and they go after idols and they, they try and follow the other nations and God calls to them and he, he sends prophets to them and he, he shows them what their ways are going to do and, and he's long-suffering to them. And, and then finally he says, okay. And he expresses his anger by saying, I guess you will get the results of your way and the nations come and destroy them. That's the consistency of God's anger. And Romans 1 is a, a passage in scripture that, that is it's probably the longest passage on God's anger, wrath. And in that passage, Paul says, he says, the wrath of God's anger is being revealed. It means it's, it's, it's expressed. You can see it. Why? He says this, because people have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They've redefined. And he's expressing his anger. And three times in that passage, it says, he gave them over. He gave them over in their sinful hearts to what they loved. He gave them over in their bodies to distorted sexuality. He gave them over in their minds to twisted thinking. God gives us over, and I, I really think it's, it's as simple as the picture that many of us have seen, we've thought about. It's, it's John 3, verse 36. It basically says there's two paths. There's two paths. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son, the wrath of God, it says, remains on them. Why? Because they won't stop walking down a path of wrath. And it eventually leads to the consequences. And what does this have to do with Lent? Well, Lent is a season where we're intended to allow the discomforts of our fasting or the boredom of our not being on social media or whatever it might be that we're trying to say no to. That space is supposed to cause us to say, is there any area in my heart, in my body, in my mind where I'm walking down a path of wrath. And Paul gives us that threefold grid. And it's a great grid to take home with you and maybe take a little time on this week and say, Lord, is there any area, anything in my heart, any, any phrase in my mind that I keep saying to myself, a lie that's not true, that eventually I'm going to believe? or something I'm saying over my kids, or something I'm observing, something that I'm starting to love that, that's actually going to take me to places I don't want to go. And if the Lord prompts you, that's his long-suffering. We want to respond to it before we're too far down the path of our own consequences. God does get angry, and it's for our, our good. And the third and last thing that I think this word is really helpful for us in is that God's people are called to be a long-suffering, slow-to-anger people. Because long-suffering isn't just a characteristic of God. As I said at the beginning, it's a fruit of his spirit. It's something that he produces in us. And if you know the fruits of the spirit, not all of them are created equal. What do I mean by that? 
Well, if you've ever been to like a Christmas gift exchange, something like that, you, you know, you see someone and you, they open up their gift and you say, oh, what did you get? And they said, oh, I got love. I say, oh, who doesn't want love? That's so great. And the next person opens their gift and, oh, they got peace. Ah, oh, I want more peace. Maybe I can borrow that from you when you're done with it. I say, what, what did you get? Well, it says here on the tag, long-suffering. The type of suffering that doesn't just go away, it stays for a long time. That is not the gift we want. And many Christians today will say it's actually not a gift of God. They'll say, God doesn't want to give you hard things. God wants to make you healthy and happy and comfortable and maybe beautiful and all the other fruits of the Spirit, but not not long-suffering. That's uncomfortable. God doesn't want us to suffer, does he? And yet, I think, in my own experience and probably in yours, it's the uncomfortable circumstances of our lives, the ones we would not choose, that God is able to use to form us in his long-suffering image. It's his character. And the thing about this long-nosed characteristic is you can't know if you're long-suffering if you don't ever have to wait. If you don't ever have to suffer that burn and live in the tension. And throughout Christian history, Christians who had little medicine, no anesthetic, none of the modern comforts. They believed that sickness or pain or plague, even bad circumstances could be God's test in our lives to form them in the image of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I most often think of sickness as being something that I want to pray against or take medicine for. And yet they saw it as a test. What's a test for? It's to see what we're lacking. Tests aren't for the teachers. I used to always think they were when I was in school. It's like those teachers just love tests. It's for us so we can, we can gather up the knowledge or the skills that we need. James 1 verse 3 to 4 says, The testing of your faith produces patience, long-suffering. But let patience, it says, have its perfect work so that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. And patience is this best and worst gift because it it forms us in the image of our our God who has the scars of long-suffering on him. Of course, God's not interested in making us tolerant. He might be interested in making some of us healthy and wealthy, but that's too low a grid. He's interested in making us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. As I've thought on that this last little bit, I, I 
thought of my sister. I'll just close in sharing a story about my sister. My sister and her husband are missionaries in Congo. And uh, I don't know if you know anything about Congo, but if you Google the top, you know, five worst places in the world to live, it's right up there. And when they got sent there, it said on the form, it said hardship posting, which basically means long suffering. Okay. So they, they knew going in, they knew it was going to be hard. They told them, they said, you will have language struggle, culture struggle, crime struggle, bug struggle, heat struggle, racism. She knew it wouldn't be easy, but they've been there now five years and she did not know it would be so hard. And what's been hard isn't all those things that they knew. It's the fact that my sister, because of the way the culture is and the mission is set up, Instead of her using her gifts of nursing and and having opportunities to talk about Jesus, my sister and her three kids live on a compound with a guard and they pretty much can't go anywhere. And her husband is off for weeks at a time flying in the jungle. And my sister called and she, she had said to me, she said, she said, Julie, I feel like my brain is rotting. And, and she said, sometimes I, I cry because I feel like people think I'm a missionary. And here I'm sitting in a compound and I, I try and pass the boredom and I, I read books and I, I do the things, but I, I do not feel like I'm a missionary. And she said, I don't know if I would have chosen this if I would have known it would be this hard. And my sister and her husband recently came back and they're here right now and They came to stay with my husband and I. And um, in the time they were with us, she outserved me at a ratio of probably two and a half to one. And not only was she serving, she was present. She was present with my kids. She was present with her kids. She was present with me. My sister somehow transformed into this person who I could not help but be struck by her presence. And we had this lovely visit and she left. And after she left, I had to call her and I said, Jacqueline, I said, I know you feel like you're wasting your time in this season, in this in-between place. And I said, God is using it to form you into a beautiful image of him. And whenever he wants to come and get you to be useful, you will be ready. not what she would have chosen, but God's using it to form her into his likeness. And as we close, I, I, I wonder if, if there's maybe a season of tension or frustration or a circumstance that maybe is not the way it should be in our lives. Maybe it's a condition or, or a person For me this week, all of a sudden I realized what mine was. And I was like, oh, I know what it is. Something that is frustrating to us that we wish would go away. And yet Lent is this season where where God is using the, the transition tension to remind us of the brokenness in ourselves and our world. And who might there be in your life that God wants to actually use to form you in the image of his long suffering. Now, I'm not saying we cannot pray 
that God would take these things away from us because, of course, that's how Jesus prayed. He said, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And, and even this morning as I was thinking about this, I thought, Lord, I think I need to write my circumstance on my mirror because I'm, I'm being quick to complain. I want to get away from it. And I, I was reminded this morning that, Lord, if you want to use this in my life, then I say thank you. Because if it will make me look more like you, then that's what I want. And so today, where can God pour his long-suffering character into your heart, into your life, so that this season of Lent, you can look a little bit more like Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that your ways are not our ways. They're not what we would choose. And as we sang that song, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Lord, would that be true of us? That we would be people who communicate your character by the way we respond to our uncomfortable circumstances or the things in culture that make us angry and frustrated. God, would you give us your heart, your way of expressing so that we could be a light to the people and places we have to go this week. Would you fill us with your long-suffering character? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.